Welcome back to Film School Fess Ups. I'm your host, Drew Morton, Associate Professor of Mass Communication at Texas A&M University, Texarkana. This is our second episode. I hope you had some time to enjoy our first episode with Michael Dwyer on uh, the Paul Schrader film, Blue Collar. I really enjoyed discussing the film with him, and uh, I hope you had some time to enjoy that episode and catch up with Blue Collar, a uh, lesser-known lesser-remembered film of the 1970s, partially because of the, what seems to be, home video rights, and uh, just kind of gets lost in the fold a little bit, despite a really profound and funny and dramatic performance by uh, Richard Pryor there in the lead. Today I've got a very special episode, welcoming my guest, Nicole Alvarado, my wife, um, so forgive the, the formality, but I wanted to treat her like everybody else. This is her, uh, biography. Nicole is a database coordinator for the soon-to-be-open Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. A graduate of UW-Milwaukee with a BFA in inner arts focusing on studio arts and film, she previously worked at the Directors Guild of America and the Getty Center. When she isn't on or by the beach, she's cooking, cross-stitching, or snuggled up on the couch watching movies. Her top three films of 2018 so far are The Rider, You Were Never Really Here, and Isle of Dogs. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and the founder of this podcast, Drew Morton, and uh, their Dotson Pabst. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at ch underscore e-e-k-y girl, so cheeky girl with an underscore between the C-H and E-E-K-Y-G-I-R-L. Um, one quick note to begin this uh, episode with Nicole. Um, uh, I discovered when recording this conversation with her uh, kind of a idiosyncrasy of the, uh, the podcast, which is that the person who hasn't seen the film tends to not talk as much about it. So if you listen to the first episode with Michael, you notice that Michael predominantly dominated the discussion um, because he had seen the film a couple times and uh, because of his area of expertise, he had uh, quite a bit to lend the discussion. So I was kind of happy to sit back. Um, after recording this uh, conversation between Nicole and I, we were a little self-conscious. I, I didn't want to seem like I was talking over her, but she also... Um, didn't feel as familiar with the film as I did, so she was kind of happy to uh, lend the floor to me. Um, so I, just to kind of note that at the front, and uh, note that I'd kind of like to explore bringing on uh, the guests in a reverse capacity um, in the in the future to kind of put the shoe on the other foot. So I'd, I'd love to pick an animated film that Nicole knows really well, just so she can kind of let her area of expertise shine a little bit more, uh, because I felt kind of bad for putting her on the spot. Um, but, you know, this is one of those things that you figure out as you as you go along. Um, the episode for two weeks from now, I've, I've decided that this is going to be every two weeks, um, features Brian Gannon and I. Uh, Brian is the uh, one of the representatives for the Texas Film Commission based out of Austin. 
um, was interesting because we both discussed a film that neither of, neither of us had seen before, which was Steven Spielberg's Sugarland Express. So the conversation was actually a bit more balanced. Um, so yeah, just one of the, the one of the quirks of doing this that uh, I'm going to work on uh, tailoring some better questions and uh, being a b bit more proactive as a as a host. But I wanted you to know um, that that is something we are working on, and I appreciate constructive feedback wherever possible. Um, but here's our episode with Nicole, and I hope you enjoy it. This is on Brian De Palma's uh, great film, Blowout. <laughs> so tell us how you got into movies. Um, so I got into movies mainly through my mom. My mom used to be such like, I mean, she, she was a Mexican immigrant, and so she learned a lot of her English through movies by going to the movies every afternoon or whatnot. And so she was basically earliest remembrance, you know, memories of me with my mom was like, you know, hanging out, watching Turner classic movies on television or watching some kind of animated musical or something. So she, she was kind of the, the, the main person who brought movies into my life. <laughs> and what kind of movies did uh, she tend to watch a lot of? We watched a lot of musicals. She was a huge um, musical fan. Um, she also loved Gone with the Wind. Um, she's still alive. I'm talking about her like she's in the past, but um, no, but she's still, you know, she loves musicals, Gone with the Wind. Favorite person in the whole wide world is Barbara Streisand, so we watched all of her movies, so yeah. <laughs> and how did that love of movies, how did her kind of favorite genres and favorite stars influence you? Do you like musicals? Do you like Barbara Streisand? Or? I, I, yeah, I appreciate musicals. It's not my favorite genre. Um, you know, it, you know, because they can definitely get a bit cheesy every now and then, like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is a bit much. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, but yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, currently, you know, it, it, I don't know, like, yeah, my mom, I mean, I don't know. It's not like my favorite genre, but I still appreciate it. Um, Barbara Streisand too, like, I mean, she's, she's just a fabulous person. So yeah, like, you know. She, you know, I'm a fan of hers. <laughs> and so what, what do you enjoy about movies more generally? Like, what is it about movies opposed to painting or sculpture or photography? What, what draws you into movies? I guess what draws me into movies is basically just the whole escape of it all. Like, you can't, I mean, my favorite genres are, like, sci-fi and and like fantasy for the most part or you know or comedy like I mean basically it's just kind of you're kind of just taken into a different world and you know and basically just an escape from reality especially these times <laughs> like comedy it's like you know comedy is a great like you know like whenever I'm feeling bad or if I'm just having a really down day I much rather watch a comedy than you know something very very dour you know so that's my thing <laughs> And what are some of your favorite films? <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> um, so favorite films, I mean, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Blade Runner, Alien, the first one. Um, uh, you know, I love animated movies, so I think like one of my favorites is WALL-E. That was fantastic. Um, Fantasia is still like one of my top ten. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a huge range. I, st I, I love coming to America. 
<laughs> I would probably put that on my top 10 just because it just makes me laugh every single time. <laughs> you spoke a bit about animated movies. What is it about animated film that appeals to you? Why do you enjoy animated movies over with fantasy and sci-fi? Like, what what is it about? You spoke about fantasy and sci-fi as being two of your favorite genres, but what about animation as a mode of filmmaking? Why do you, why do you appreciate that? I love animation only because you. I mean, you can. I mean, granted, you can see the artistry behind you know sci-fi or fantasy or you know something that's highly art directed in some way. But like with animation, it you know you you know it, it takes you know two to three years to make something, and it it you know it's just the artistry behind it. Um, I do like computer generated you know you know CD you know CGI or not computer generated films, but. Um, but yeah, the like hand-drawn animation is just, yeah, for me it's still like, you know, it, it's art, you know, so that's basically why I like animation. <laughs> so, um, I'm not sure how many of the people listening to this will know this story, but Nicole and I obviously are married and we met in film school and so we took a pretty horrible class. It was a great idea for a class called Writing About Film and Television. Um, that was kind of teaching critical tools, how you write about things beyond plot summary, and whether or not you like something or not. Um, unfortunately, it was taught in a pretty horrible way in which we found out, like, at the end, what the grades were, like, what the percentage was and what everything was worth. So he basically, the, uh, the professor who should be named, who shall remain nameless, um, basically retconned all of our assignments so we didn't know how much they were worth until the last day of class. Um, so we skipped class a couple days and went on some dates and, and saw some movies together, um, which was, I think, pretty enjoyable. We didn't have any real weird first date movies. No, we skipped Independence Day. We skipped Independence Day to go to the beach. I was a little mad about that. I did want to see Independence and, Day. Well, I mean, you could see Independence Day at any time. You could. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, fun first date movies that we had or dating movies that we had. I remember taking you to see... Peeping Tom and Eyes Without a Face, which are, you know, I, I think some people would probably, like, in more traditional relationships, be like, those aren't good first date movies, but... It was during know. Halloween. It was during Halloween. It was, it was, it was a good time. Um, yeah. You know, we also went to go see Russian Ark together. We did go see Russian Ark together. Fabulous. Yeah, no, our, our Union Theater at UW-Milwaukee was, was very, was very solid. Um, but the interesting kind of tidbit about where you and I diverged a little bit was um, I was more on the English side so at UW-Milwaukee the English department and film studies overlap and we have to take filmmaking classes once in a while whereas you were over in the art school doing inner arts uh, so like more production uh, BFA oriented whereas I was more critically oriented uh, so our conversations were always pretty interesting because once in a while we'd take one of the same classes or we'd go see Stan Brackage movies, but your approach to always thinking about them and talking about them was very different than, than my own. Um, so I'm kind of curious, given your education and how ours you know, overlapped and differed, like what would be your fess up? What's, what's a canonized film that you haven't seen that you feel like you should have seen by now? Oh, well, outside of Blowout? <laughs> Outside of blood, Outside because we watched that for today. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just an icebreaker. What's something you feel like? And I know you give me grief for not having seen Greece and all of these other yeah. things. So, what's something you feel like 
bad for not having watched? I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, obviously there was some, I mean, I haven't seen Andre Rublev. That's like one thing that I haven't seen that I've been meaning to watch that's always been on my list. Um, it, it, up until last year, it took me forever to see, um, you know, ref um, uh, Les Samurai. Never saw Les Samurai until like a couple months ago. <laughs> I can't think of anything. It's okay. I just, yeah. I, oh. We'll circle well, back. I, what's that? <laughs> we'll circle back to that. Well, and I know it's it's a tough question because you and I, right, it's, it's kind of this weird dissidence where we talk about this quite a bit and it's like you and I personally will make lists of movies we feel like we need to catch up on and uh, yeah, so like we, we talk about this all the time and then to kind of put you on the spot and ask you about it is, is kind of weird. Um, so what I, what I like to do around this point of the show after the, the introductions is to kind of briefly provide a plot summary of the movie we're talking about. So today we're obviously talking about Brian De, Palma, De Palma's blowout. Um, and this is this discussion obviously is going to involve spoilers, so if you haven't seen Blowout, uh, you may want to turn off, go watch it, and come back to us when you finally catch up on it. Um, but I'll, I'll give a brief summary. So it's essentially a film about a sound engineer named Jack Terry, um, played by John Travolta. Travolta works for kind of a Roger Corman type horror producer, and he's the sound man, so it's his job to come up with the sound effects for these horror movies. And so the film starts off with about a five minute long, long take um, point of view shot, kind of similar to the beginning of Halloween where it's all through this killer's eyes and it comes into the, uh, the killer starts creeping into this dormitory and goes to stab a woman in the shower and she screams and it's this really poor scream, right? It's a funny scream, it's not actually terrifying and it pulls us out of the movie and we find out that in fact we are watching a movie that Jack Terry is working on and that it has been his failure to find a decent scream for this movie. So he's sent back out into the wild to try to find a proper scream and as he's, re he's basically recording different sound effects uh, in a park on the side of a, a, a highway, uh, frogs, wind, all of these kinds of things, he hears a car screeching around a corner uh, the car crashes, it goes into a lake, and Jack uh, swims into the lake to save a young woman named Sally, played by Nancy Allen. And as the, the film goes on, we find out that Sally is a kind of call girl who's been placed in this limousine with the prominent politician who was about to, uh, about to announce that he was going to run for president. And uh, many of the poll numbers had shown that he was probably going to win, but he dies in the accident. Um, so Travolta... Um, the Jack character keeps listening to this recording that he has and finds out that he basically makes a, a determination that the, the tire was shot out and that this accident was not actually an accident, it was an assassination. And uh, he figures this out very early on and as the film progresses it becomes kind of a bit of a conspiracy thriller. Um, so I'm curious to, to ask you this. You hadn't seen Blow Up before, you'd seen some De Palma films. Do you think this is a film that deserves to be canonized? Is it a, is it an important film? Do you think for the from the nineteen seventies? Well, it was made in eighty one. <laughs> yeah, eighty one. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but it, to, in this, yeah, no, it's a that's a good point. Um, but to me, it, it does feel like a lot of those films of the seventies, and we'll come back to this later, that are kind of made in that post Watergate moment where it's it's kind of about questioning authority and uh, the government, all of these different things. So. 
Do you think it's an important film? Do you think it's a film that deserves to be canonized and remembered? I mean, it's in the Criterion Collection. Do you think it's deserving of that status? Or what was your first impression of the film? Well, first impression was basically this is De Palma's version of, of the conversation. Like if he wanted to create his own version, but via Hitchcock, this is, you know, his conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely my second favorite De Palma film. And I mean, and I'm not the biggest fan of his work. Uh, granted, Phantom of the Paradise is a lot better. <laughs> Although that's just me. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I mean, yeah, I think, I think it deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. Um, John Travolta gives one of his best performances. I mean, there's that little pocket in the early, you know, early, late 70s, early 80s, you know, where, you know, he, he's an actor and he's no longer, you know, action star or, you know, whatever he is, you know, whatever he is now. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like, you know, that's, you know. It's funny you say that. I mean, I'm amused because when I showed it to my students last semester, um, they thought John Travolta's performance was bad, and I, I was rewatching it. This is maybe the third time I've seen it, and I'm struck by, kind of by the depth of his character in here, yeah. right? Where I had forgotten that Terry or Jack is a uh, is a like a Vietnam veteran. It's alluded to um, very briefly, and then he comes back from the war, and he basically learns his trade by doing these recordings for the police department. I remember that part, and then he fails. And just like Harry Call in the conversation has this kind of history of fucking up yep. and needing to redeem himself and then failing again, just mm -hmm. like Call does in the conversation. Um, but there's there's quite a range there. And by the end of the film, spoilers again, um, when he fails and Sally is killed at the hands of uh, John Lithgow's character, Burke, who's this kind of... Um, Gordon Liddy type, you know. Fixer. Yeah, he's a fixer, he's but a fixer. he's he's off. What's interesting though is he's kind of off the reservation and operating on his own. Um, so he's gonna find his fingerprints. <laughs> yeah, but he's not, but he's not he's not, he's working for the government to a point, mm -hmm. and then they're disturbed by what he does. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, Jack fails, and then in that last scene, the irony is that of course the scream that Sally belts out becomes the scream from the beginning of the film where he was kind of failing, but he's sitting on that kind of park bench like just having severe PTSD that he hasn't succeeded. And so I feel like Travolta does a really great job of showcasing a range of emotions. There's some swagger early on in his banter with the film producer and the different women in his life, and you can kind of see that charming side to him uh, that, of course, we've seen in things like Saturday Night Fever, but he's also vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, that, that final scene of him, like, he's not, he's, you know, he says, what, two words? And that's it. And then, I mean, but you can tell he is just defeated. Yeah, you keep like, saying, you know, that it's a good scream, it's a good scream. And yeah, he's just, yeah. Words. <laughs> yeah well, no, yeah. I, I, it's something along those lines. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, like you could just tell, like, you know, how just basically defeated he is given everything that's happened to him, you know, up until that point. And so, yeah. Yeah, I, th I, th I think it's a good performance. And I, 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 I don't know. I don't know great, what my I students mean, were expecting, but I, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. I don't think like I don't know if like your students are watching Saturday Night Live or Grease or, or Saturday Night Fever. Sorry, Saturday. Night Fever. Yeah, no, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's an interesting question too about like how much Travolta's kind of image has changed over time, and you know what do 
do students even recognize him now, like younger students? I mean, I can't, I mean, his relevancy after that Tarantino resurgence kind of diminished by like Get Shorty by, right. the, by the end of the 90s. So yeah, by the time my students are born, they, they kind of have this vague recollection that this was someone important. But yeah, I don't know if they see him as being kind of washed up or not, but obviously I still think he's, he's got it. Um, you, you brought something up earlier, which is kind of this elephant in the conversation, elephant in the room, which is it's really hard to discuss Blowout and not discuss Blow Up, the Antonioni film, and the Coppola film, The Conversation. And so I don't know if we, one, would you even call this like a remake or is it just like a spiritual homage? Because it, it's kind of an interesting question because whenever somebody kind of, craps on remakes or homages or reboots I, I'm always kind of like tempted to look at these three movies and they're very different but I enjoy all three of them immensely for very different reasons so right. how would you classify Blowout? I mean I would just consider this I mean I guess an homage I mean there are I mean there's so many movies out there that have the same story like I mean you know, princess movies are basically like, you know, like the, you know, like the, the schlubby, like lower class woman finds, you know, a guy and, you know, become, you know, the guy turns out, you know, Prince Charming sure. comes and gets her, you know, so I, I, I guess this, if, if I'm going to be asked like the, th the, you know, if this is a homage or a remake or something, I would say it'd be an homage more than anything, but, um, yeah. <laughs> No, I think I think that's fair. I, I think because the nature of the conflict is so different in all three of them. When you right. watch something like Blow Up, you have a film that is ultimately about a guy wondering about his perception of the world, right? Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't involve the government. There's no conspiracy theory angle. It's this uh, photographer played by David, uh, David Hemmings in London swinging London, he's a photographer of models, he's kind of, you know, a swinger doing his thing, he seems a little lost, right, it's got those kind of classic Antonioni tropes of uh, loveless sex and meaningless of existence going on, right, so it's much more existential in nature and philosophical, and ultimately at the end of the film, there is no answer to the riddle, right, that's the whole point, like, the, the ambiguity of the situation is for you to kind of read into and and kind of determine on your on your own, right? So there is no solution to the end of uh, blow up. Whereas the conversation, to me, is closer to blow out because one, there's also there's there's an answer, right? We know in both cases what has happened, right? That call has misinterpreted the conversation that he's recorded. Uh, very much like Jack in, in Blowout, he has this history of wanting to do the right thing. He has a history of making the wrong decision, and that is kind of um, oozing over onto his subjectivity. Um, but he misinterprets the conversation, fails, it results in somebody's death, and um, he's kind of a lost soul at the end of the film, right? Destroying his house and all mm -hmm. of those things. So his endpoint's very much the same. Um, but it is on call who has made the wrong interpretation. Blowout is different. Watching it this third time, I was surprised by how soon he figures it out. Right? There's never a moment of ambiguity for Jack of wondering if it's a blowout. He's pretty certain 
within the first moment he listens mm-hmm. to that tape that this has happened. Yeah, I mean, but you know, it's also too like his trade is sound. He yeah, knows, he knows what a gunshot is when he hears it right away. Yeah, but that's so different than the call figure and the conversation. Yeah, he's kind of blinded by his yeah. pride, whereas Jack's like he's got the pride and he's got the the technique down. It's it's more in the mechanics of it where he can't physically be in the same place, which right. is ultimately his failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's how he failed in the police department too. Like yeah, he little, wires it wrong. Yeah, he, the five second flashback that he had was all about him fucking up the wire <laughs> or the wiring screwing up so yeah yeah but they they both also end with these guys who blow it and are lost and mm-hmm. are defeated and um yeah although like i said we we know the answer to both riddles oh, the, you know the weird thing about blowout compared to the conversation is it's not his failure of interpretation it's the other you know, failure of the mechanics, failure to be there, failure of, like, forethought. Because in certain ways, he leads to Sally's death, right? Mm-hmm. She's about to run away. Yep. And she could get off scot-free. It's kind of like the big heat I was mm-hmm. thinking of, um, where Glenn Ford basically kills all the women in his life because he's obsessed with this case. Um, so, yeah, it's ultimately kind of Travolta who brings her back into it and ends up killing her um, inadvertently. Basically, his ambition killed her. <laughs> his ambition does kind of kill her. So, failure of ambition. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not failure of ambition. It, the ambition is, is there, but it's he can't, like, solidify it right. and make it work. There's something else I was going to say about that, and I, I can't remember. Oh, um, the other interesting thing about it, right? So, throughout the film... One of the things drawing him into the investigation is to do the right thing, right? Because he's concerned that the assassination plot is going to be wiped away, right? Mm-hmm. And that the official news record and historical record of this event is essentially going to be that this guy died in an accident and everyone's trying to sanitize it for different reasons, right? Uh, the governor's family wants to sanitize it because they don't want people... Uh, not his family, but his people, his handlers want to sanitize it because they don't want his family to know he was with a prostitute. Um, the government wants to sanitize it because they don't want people to know that they've also, they've obviously killed this guy so that the incumbent can win the election. Right. But it also continues on to the end, which is we find out in the final news report that Sally is killed by Burke, which we, you know, knew. Um, the cover story that he invents about being a serial killer who's like going around town killing all these blonde women by carving Liberty Bells into them um, is accepted. But the other thing that's accepted along with it is it's Jack who helps kill Burke at the end, right? Like mm-hmm. Burke's stabbing himself and Travolta sure. is kind of stabbing himself with him. And Jack's involvement is completely removed. Mm-hmm. So in certain ways, I was thinking about it and I was like, there are some similarities to Blow Up where this guy ultimately is completely ineffectual. Like, he has done nothing. His his entire contribution to this entire narrative by the end of the film is erased. He, he doesn't even get the credit for killing the bad guy. Yeah, he can't, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, he's pretty much back to square one. I mean, if, you know, he would have succeeded with his plan, something would have happened probably. But yeah, like... Yeah, no one knows what he, he Yeah, there's done. there's not even, like, the compromised version, which he gets credit for, like, bringing down the bad guy, right? He's, yeah. com- he's completely forgotten about and yeah. removed. Um, so, 
we were heading towards this a little earlier when you were talking about Brian De Palma. What do you what do you think about Brian De Palma? You said you weren't like a huge fan. Um, what what are your you, you like Phantom of the Paradise? What yes. what what draws you to Phantom of the Paradise? Well, Phantom of the Paradise is just so batshit, and Paul Williams, man. I mean, he gives like one of the best performances. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I just, with, with, I feel like with Brian De Palma, he, he kind of makes the same beats in a lot of the movies. Cause I mean, he is such a, you know, Hitchcock fan. Like, you know, every single movie that I see of him, it's like, oh, I, I see, you know, Vertigo and oh, I see Psycho. It's just, you know, it gets to the point where it's like, you know, I mean, it gets, it gets a little hokey after a while, I guess. But, um... But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I liked I liked Body Double a lot. Body Double. I think was that's great. fair, and I mean, that was my first impression of De Palma. My first impression was I think I watched, I'd seen probably Scarface and the and the Untouchables when I was in high school. And I didn't really know who he was, and uh, in college I remember watching Dress to Kill, and I was just kind of dismissive. I was like, oh, all this guy does is Hitchcock homages, and I I don't like it. And then I just kind of stopped watching his <laughs> movies. Um, so yeah, it took me probably 10 years to come back around and watch the rest of his stuff and Blowout was kind of the first one where um, Ben sat down with me and was like, you, you need to give De Palma another shake. And yeah, you know, like he's doing Hitchcock, but he's doing him in such a... He's doing him in a different way and I get it. I, I, I get it. The love behind De Palma. I do. I just, for me, it's like, not my favorite director. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of, like, a good comparison, and for me, I think Hitchcock, to me, is, like, code-era, like, noir. Right. If we're coming up with, like, an analogy, and, like, mm -hmm. De Palma's, like, neo-noir, where it's, like, I can break all of the rules and transgress sure. all those boundaries that Hitchcock couldn't. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so, like, they're much more violent and fucked up and misogynistic and strange you know like it's always interesting um to come into a conversation of people who've seen body double for the first time where they're trying to figure out what exactly the movie is trying to do because on one hand it is a deeply misogynistic film but it's also about how horrible these people are who are right. you know like the, that they're kind of subject to this and they're the misogyny is coming from this kind of masculine masculinity um that they kind of have where even the lead guys like this this creep um, how would you define a De Palma film? Well, <laughs> aside from Hitchcock, <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I mean, a lot of you know, many of his movies are very violent. So obviously, um, the violence, um, yeah, I guess that. Um, obviously, the Hitchcock homages, the the score. I always feel like with De Palma scores are just so amped. And kind of a bit melodramatic, melodramatic yeah. at times. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> he is kind of pure technique, which yeah, which right. is kind of a, I think why I'm attracted to his work uh, as like a formalist. I'm just like, oh, there's like there's such a virtuosity on display here, right? Um, that I can appreciate from like a, a craft standpoint. One of the other things I was thinking about with regard to De Palma is always kind of his desire to surprise, right? So he's obviously using Hitchcock technique and suspense and all that, um, but he's also, in a lot of his different films, really 
taking that aspect of Hitchcock that we see in Psycho where he kills off Janet Lee in the first 40 minutes and he almost puts that in a, it's in a lot of his films where like Dressed to Kill killing Angie Dickinson off which is obviously his Psycho homage but like even rewatching something like The Untouchables where he puts Sean Connery in there and he's using a star who's aligned with you know, James Bond, like the one of the ultimate badasses in cinema where nothing bad ever happens to Sean Connery, right? And he kills him, and it's this horribly violent tragedy, and it's very jarring, and... It's also heartbreaking. So, yeah, no, it is, and, and then he kills off the, the accountant after that, and I can't remember the character actor's name, but it's always like he's got such a a gift for kind of using stars in a way that is kind of very much against the grain and uh, and surprising you with something that he decides to do with them. So I think um, killing Sally at the end of, of Blowout is is quite a loss and quite a tragedy. Did, did you see that did you see that coming at all when you were watching it? Did you know that was going to happen? I didn't know. I, I for sure thought that. Like my heart is the hearts, Terry. Or Terry, right? Yeah. Yeah, was Jack gonna. Terry. Yeah, Jack was gonna get up there in time, and so yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're there with him, and especially with the score, and especially the way that he was framing, like you, you can t you can definitely the suspense was so amped that I was like, yes, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, and it, and of course no, it doesn't, <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, it's, I mean, I'm trying to think of other De Palma movies with a really pessimistic ending. So we get to Body Double where he does save the day, right? And the guy falls into the grave and Melanie Griffith um, lives, right? Um, Scarface, if you were really rooting for <laughs> Well, you know he's going to die. I mean, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a gangster movie. You know he's going to die. Did you know right. that the sister and the best friend were going to go? Maybe not. Maybe I don't not. know. That, that was a little bit harder to take more than anything. Um, like femme, or femme Fatale. Like, you know. Yeah. The end with, like, yeah. That was a pretty suspenseful ending. Is that the one where he gets impaled after the, the truck goes through? I'm trying to remember, because there's so, so yeah. many turns of the screw in that film, I'm almost having a hard time remembering what the actual ending was, like where it comes out. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about dates, but like part of what makes this a memorable movie for me, and I think fairly interesting, is how it's kind of profoundly a 1970s movie, right? You said it was made in 81, but to me it feels like it belongs to that new Hollywood movement in different ways. Um, you know, to me it feels like a continuation of The Conversation and Chinatown and The Godfather because of its pessimism. Sure. So you get a film that obviously is wearing this kind of American iconography on its on its sleeve right it's set in philadelphia i mean this liberty celebrations going on i mean yeah like i mean her scene is in front of you know her death scene is like in front of a you the know, american flag while the fireworks flag, are yeah. going off <laughs> right yeah it's not particularly subtle um so yeah it's got this it's kind of integrating aspects of the jfk assassination uh the zapruder film um chappaquiddick and um Watergate, obviously, where there's this kind of conspiracy theory angle where these guys are, are trying to take over. So in certain ways, 
right? It's, it's bigger than Chinatown. In Chinatown, the police force is essentially under the control of this rich industrialist who has contributed these horrible atrocities, raping his daughter, killing his partner, you know, raping the land, all of these different things, but it's essentially one guy in one town, whereas Blowout is like, no, the whole country the whole is, is hosed. Fucked. Yeah. And, you know, kind of very tell it's a very important, you know, like it's an interesting, you know, to see this in 2018 when, you know. Yeah, no, it, yeah. it's it, to me it's it's a film that does resonate a lot today um, with regard to that. But it's also like there there's like shards of hope in it. The fact that like the handlers of Lithgow's character are like, oh no, you're 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 crossing a bridge, but they can't rein him in. So it's like it's at the end of the day, it's like yeah, the system's bad, but it's mm -hmm. not the ultimate corrupt force right that it's this one guy who's you know it's kind of like dr strange love where like the system isn't helping right but it's this one guy who's crossed a bridge too far and is completely insane who's ultimately um off the reservation and doing what he wants to do mm -hmm. but yeah you've got these kind of films where these these characters um you know who are played by very major movie stars jack nicholson Gene Hackman, John Travolta are ultimately powerless against the system and they kind of just have, are beaten down by it and mm -hmm. have to accept it. Yeah, I mean, I thought this movie was made after Phantom of the Paradise. Oh, it was? <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, like, right after. I thought this was his second his oh, movie following. I see. And so, yeah, so it took me a little bit by surprise that it was in the early 80s. Well, I, I think that might be one of the reasons why it didn't perform well is because... It comes out in like 81, 82, it, it, was it 80 or 81? 81. It was a 80, yeah, early 80s. According to Wikipedia, it's 81. According to Wikipedia, it's 81. <laughs> um, so yeah, you get this film that's like coming out in the midst of Ronald Reagan, right? Mm -hmm. And Reagan's kind of riding in and saying it's a new day in America. Sure. Let's be optimistic again. And I think this film basically failed at the box office because it was five years too late. Yeah, it was definitely a several, yeah. If it happened, if this movie came out, I mean, maybe it would have been more, um, I mean, after the conversation, right after the conversation, a lot of people would probably call it like a ripoff of conversation. I feel like, but yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a movie that probably would have been more successful during that age, as opposed to 81, when Ronald Reagan, celebrity, you know, celebrity president coming into office with a lot of hope and optimism for the country. Yeah. No, it is, it, it's always the film that throws me in terms of the timing of De Palma's filmography, because it doesn't seem like, it seems like it was made before Dress to Kill. It just doesn't seem like a, a right. film that's from the 80s. It, feel, it does feel very much out of time. Whereas, like, Dress to Kill, I feel like, was a movie that was made in the 80s. So. And, and of yeah. course, Body Double feels very much the same way with the music. And, <sighs> yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. Blowout does not seem of its time. It seems five years behind. Right. But it, that's not a critique. That's yeah, just, no, no, yeah. No. Not a critique, it's just, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, wasn't this made in like 876 or something? <laughs> what two scenes in the film kind of encapsulate the style or the the story or the themes of it for you? For me, um, hmm, well, definitely the end scene. <laughs> 
the end scene, I mean, for sure, it's like classic De Palma. Um, As in, you mean the scene where she gets killed or yes. the scene where he's kind of like on the bench, like, or he's actually in the sound room, I he's think is the, the last room. moment yeah. we see him. No, sorry. It, yeah, her death scene. So him listening in and just like the whole suspenseful, will he get there in time? Will he not? Um, that, I think, is probably... And there's that great, like, traveling camera that's circling around them while the fireworks are... It's a, it's a beautiful yeah. shot, yeah. actually. It's a, it's a great scene, I, I, I have to say. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what other... Oh, I mean, just, you know, his... Just, I, I'm trying to think. Oh, when he's um, going back and forth, like, trying to, um, like when he first notices the gunshot and so he goes back and forth back and forth like with oh yeah where he keeps rewinding yeah, where he keeps rewinding it when he first he's trying you know and then he goes by frame by frame to make sure that yeah this is it like this is where it happened and i am right <laughs> and diploma does some really great direction in that scene where like he's using the pencil and mm -hmm. recreating the the space that he was in when he had recorded the sound. Right. Yeah, no, that's I, I love that sequence where I think he's at Sally's hotel room listening to the tape and just trying to use the different speakers and aspects of the recording to kind of reconstruct where everything is so when he hears the frog and the, the owl and... Exactly. I feel like, yeah, those moments where, like, De Palma uses, like, split diopters to kind of suggest where things are in proximity mm -hmm. to... Uh, Travolta, like those are those great moments for me where I'm like, yeah, this is this is the poem yeah, of the stylist. Yeah, exactly. Like the style. <laughs> yeah. um, the other one for me, like I obviously am drawn to the ending as well um, because of its just profound pessimism and um, yeah, just kind of I, I, again, like it's not a subtle film in the metaphor that it has, but it's 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 I I, I kind of appreciate it for that. Um, the other one I could think of, and it's kind of the the inverse of the scene where he puts the tape together, is when he's found out that the tapes in his lab have been erased. Right. And there's that shot where it just spins around and around, and it reminds me actually a lot of the sequence in the conversation where it's at the end and the camera's up in the corner and it keeps shifting left to right mm -hmm. and it feels like a surveillance camera. And it's this moment of like paranoia and stress and he doesn't know if he's being watched or what's going on and uh, the ringing phones and everything again kind of in that moment. I don't think anyone will ever say De Palma is a subtle filmmaker, um, but it, it's very good at evoking that sense of paranoia mm -hmm. and suspense for me. Agreed. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts to offer up on, on Blowout? I don't. Um, I, you know, I, I highly enjoyed the film. Um, it, it, it actually, I ended up watching Phantom of the Paradise again after this just because I wanted to watch another De Palma film, but also I was very sleepy, so <laughs> something I knew very well and I could fall asleep to. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a good time. I mean, you know, it reminded me on how great John Travolta was as well. I mean, oh, I miss 70s Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> if you, all right, given how much you appreciate Phantom of the Paradise, and this goes back to the first question <laughs> about your enjoyment of musicals, how would you sell Phantom of the Paradise, <sighs> given that this is a film that you really enjoy? Like, how would you get someone to watch Phantom of the Paradise, how would you get it to appeal to them? I, I obviously enjoy it as much as yeah. you do, but yeah, like, what's your, what's your sell? 
Uh, my style is, I mean, if you want to watch, like, a balls-out, like, crazy, like, musical based off of the Phantom of the Paradise, or Phantom of the Opera, I mean, it's like a 70s, like, acid version of Phantom of the, Phantom of the Opera, so if you want to see that, see Phantom of the Paradise. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> coming on today, Nicole. I appreciate your time, and, uh, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nicole Alvarado about Brian De Palma's great film, Blow Out, a fantastic 4th of July film, if you're looking for something to watch in the next week or so. Um, it was a really great conversation, and uh, I look forward to bringing her back soon to discuss something that she may be a bit more well-versed in. Um, a couple real quick announcements. Uh, apologies for the for, from a technical standpoint for the room tone on that piece. Uh, we were experimenting with a new um, kind of recording setup considering we were both in the same room together uh, using a Rode um, lav mic, which which wasn't bad, uh, but it obviously sounds a lot different than the first episode, um, which had its own technical quirks, uh, given that my headset was profoundly different than Michael's. Um, it's just one of those things that I'm conscious of. It's, it's difficult to fix it given the... Uh, given the format of the show that we have a different guest on and uh, it's often recorded over Skype and not every guest has a professional microphone. I try to be mindful of it when I'm editing, but uh, it doesn't always uh, pan out. I look for our next episode in two weeks. Again, that's with Brian Gannon um, from the Texas Film Commission. We'll be discussing uh, a Texas film, actually. Steven Spielberg's theatrical debut, Sugarland Express with Goldie Hawn. So I hope you uh, catch up on that film if you haven't already seen it and you join us for a conversation in just about two weeks. Um, in the meantime, I'll see you at the movies. You can find me at The Cinema Doctor on Twitter. And uh, yeah, have a great time and uh, see you at the movies.